Well, I can think of no better way to start this sermon this morning than with the Apostle Paul's exact words from our epistle lesson this morning. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, have you ever wondered about that? Why so many Lutheran pastors start their sermons that way with the reference to grace and peace? Well, there you go. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Pastors are just following the example of St. Paul. And we find St. Peter also starting out his letters in very much the same way. So today, I'm sure you'll find uh, other clergy and other churches, not just Lutherans, employing this same epistle style of greeting in their sermons as well. But it's not just a formality. And I want to give you the impression that they're just nice-sounding words, grace and peace, they actually convey a deep sense of meaning with the full weight of divine action behind them. In fact, in everything that God has accomplished in the long history of what we call the drama of redemption, going all the way back to the beginning, grace and peace have been his gifts to his people. They are prizes that he has won for us through battle and through blessing they come to us. Today, We'll see how Jesus, the King of Peace, comes into Jerusalem, the city of peace, and he comes, ironically, paradoxically, ready to fight. In fact, this impending fight will prove to be the fight of his life, according to his humanity. We'll see as we progress through our Advent lessons this month just how this one, this unique one, born of a virgin, as our Emmanuel, God with us, will see how this Jesus engages in mortal combat. But it's not what the good citizens of the city of peace expect that fight to look like, not by a long shot. This long-expected Jesus who comes peacefully into Jerusalem is going to trample all over their many long-held messianic expectations. Even our own expectations will be trampled upon. The people are in for a very unpleasant surprise when they realize that this one whom they greet with shouts of sweet Hosanna, he is the one whose mortal wounds they inflict. We shall see too, even more clearly by the end of this month, by the end of the Advent season, that one who witnessed these events back then really couldn't be blamed for rushing to the conclusion that Jesus' mortal wounds would write the end of the story. The king of peace dies in the city of peace. That's just a bygone headline now in the Jerusalem Post. But we all know better. We all knew that the church season has a lot of joy built into this Advent as well that we can expect. More joy than we would even think, indeed. Indeed, along with that joy come also grace and peace. Hard-fought grace and peace. And it's my prayer that God the Holy Spirit would never allow us to take those highly prized gifts, grace and peace, for granted, despite how often these wonderful words are used. So with all that preliminary uh, treatment out of the way, let's get into our gospel lesson for today. Mark chapter 11. As we do, I'd like to start out by saying that you and anybody else slightly confused about today's 
chosen gospel reading, you could be forgiven for thinking, you know, that secret society of the St. Louis scripture selectors, those guys, uh, some that I like to point to are responsible for the back of our bulletins with the gospel printed out there. If you thought like I did, that they all must have gone through some kind of time warp and come out on the tail end of the Lenten season, you could be forgiven for all that. Certainly because, yes, this is the exact passage we use for Palm Sunday. It's not you, it's them. But there's a method to their madness. We just need to give them a little slack, and we need to put down our palm branches for now. And Some of you look like you had yours raised with violent intent. You can put down your palm branches for another day, but your cloaks, okay, your cloaks, go ahead and take them off, figuratively speaking. We are going to concentrate more on the cloaks today. So you're definitely encouraged to take them off and lay them out. Your Messiah is about to trample all over them on donkey hoof. There's surprisingly a lot that the Bible has to say about cloaks or outer garments. Who knew, right? I mean, you can talk about uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Quote, if anyone wants to sue you, and take away your tunic, Jesus taught this, let him have your cloak also. There's this interesting account as well from way back in Second Kings involving Elisha. Anything involving the prophet Elisha is interesting. Here he sends a runner, kind of an apprentice prophet, to go and hastily anoint Jehu, a commander in Israel's army, as the new king of Israel. Jehu's first order of business is to go and swiftly mete out justice against the evil king Ahab and his witchy wife Jezebel. But this runner goes, and he finds Jehu in the middle of a sort of war room meeting with his military heads at their vision version of the Pentagon. The unnamed young runner stammers a telegram from God for a commander Jehu, Jehu goes with this apprentice prophet then to a separate room for the coronation's quick version, and then Jehu returns to his war meeting, almost as if nothing had happened. His military leaders want to know, though, what was all that about? Jehu downplays the whole thing, dismissing Elisha, who dispatched this message. You know the man and the, and the sort of things that he likes to say, Jehu replied. The others protested essentially saying, oh no, you don't get to yada, 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 a special telegram from God. What happened? Jehu exceeds and drops it on them. All right, I guess I'm sort of the new king of Israel. As soon as he says that, all the commanders immediately take off their cloaks and they lay them out under his feet and on the bare steps leading outside where they proceed to blow the trumpet and proclaim Jehu is king. So this practice then of taking off your cloak and laying it out, not for just anyone, it's an act of respect and honor in the order of that shown a king. It is essentially what we would call today rolling out the red carpet, right? For royalty. Well, it's a good study habit to go 
back a little bit, as we did, uh, to take this word cloak and observe its use elsewhere in Holy Scripture so we can get a better picture of how the Holy Spirit has inspired some of the otherwise normal human beings who are God's chosen instruments to write down and preserve his word for us. It's even better when you can now to check out the same author's use of that same word. And we're in luck today on that count. If I could say it, uh, it was luck. We're very fortunate because Mark does use the same word cloak and right in our own backyard too, I might add. Uh, yes, I like to harp on the importance of always looking at the context of a given passage that you're studying to better grasp the depth and the breadth of what's being taught there. And so while we are in Mark 11 in our gospel reading today, um, the triumphal entry, we need only to glance over our shoulder back to Mark 10 to find Mark again saying something about this word cloak. And it's right there. It's at the very end of Mark 10. What a find. In other words, we've got a back-to-back use of the same word by the same author, albeit from two different scenes that he lays out. That doesn't always happen. So I hope you're as excited about it as I am this morning. Okay, so we'll call our gospel reading of the triumphal uh, entry today, we'll call that scene one. Since we started there, that was our assigned text. Scene two then, we now back up to um, Mark 10, and it's about blind Bartimaeus. I'm sure you remember blind Bartimaeus. He closes out chapter 10 there. And whenever you encounter such a blind person when you're reading through the Gospels, don't feel too sorry for them because they're setting you up. The Lord is about to dispense some of his heavenly grace as he does when he always comes on a scene. And he's about to perform a miracle before our eyes. And yes, while all the Lord's miracles point to his coming kingdom, where there will be no more blindness, there will be no deaf or mute children, there will be no one who is lame or hungry or brokenhearted. We can and we should rejoice in all of that, but always pay attention to the details concerning how and where and for whom Jesus performs a miracle. There's a lesson being taught for all of us in those important details there. Let me recount that healing with Bartimaeus. Jesus and his disciples were about to leave Jericho. Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, would sit by the roadside. He heard that it was Jesus walking by, and he began to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. They rebuked him. That's kind of what their habit was. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stops and says to his disciples, call him. Take heart, they say now. Get up, he's calling you. And here's the good part. Verse 50. And throwing off his cloak, Bartimaeus sprang up and came to Jesus. And we'll get back, get back to that in just a second. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. And Jesus said, go your way. Your faith has saved you. And immediately, he recovered his sight and followed him on the way, unquote. He followed Jesus on the way. Where? Well, the very next scene as we've been going over is the triumphal entry where 
All the Passover pilgrims had been gathering when Jesus starts to enter the scene on a humble donkey. And then the myriads start doing things with their cloaks, right? But not so fast. Before we get there to Jerusalem, Mark tells us that blind, begging Bartimaeus, as soon as he's given the word that Jesus is calling him, that's when he throws off his cloak. And that's all he's got, this blind beggar. He can't even see yet. He just hears the word that Jesus is calling him. A blind beggar would lean heavily on that possession, his cloak. That would be very special and very important to him. It's his warmth during his those cold days and cold nights. It's his storefront, so to speak, as he lays it out there for people passing by to throw money on that cloak. That's how they could tell he was a blind beggar. And that was his only source of income. And whenever he got forcibly moved by the local authorities to a less congenial spot to relocate, that irreplaceable cloak of his would soften the seating arrangement against any immovable rocks that he might encounter and cause scrapes or sores. Like you often see homeless people today, they cling tightly to their shopping cart or tattered blankets or whatever it is. That's how blind Bartimaeus clung to his cloak. He didn't have much, but he had his cloak. And even before he had his eyesight restored, he was by faith willing to give it up because Jesus was calling him. And Jesus could already see there that this man had faith. But in order to make it plain for all to see, including his own disciples, Jesus asks, how may I serve you? The ESV actually translates it like this. What do you want me to do for you? Kind of an obvious question, right? A question employed, though, to draw out faith even more, as that the Lord delights in our petitions of prayer. But it's also a question asked by one who serves. How might I serve you? It's right there in our backyard context from Mark 10 today. In fact, the last thing before Mark brings on Bartimaeus, it's the Lord saying to his disciples in Mark 10.45, a very loving rebuke. And it's aimed at his disciples who had the wrong idea about Jesus, the king, and his kingdom. Lord, when you come into your kingdom, give us the good spots on your right and on your left. Uh, Jesus, knowing that he's facing his cross at the end of the week, and knowing that the criminals will be hung there next to him on their crosses on his right and on his left, uh, that's one thing that prompts his rebuke to his disciples. You don't know what you're asking. Jesus softly, gently, as on a beast of burden, he tramples over the disciples' misconstrued visions of the coming kingdom and what he's all about. He informs them that in his kingdom, the greatest is the servant of all. Mark 10.45 sets the stage for serving Bartimaeus then, and serving all those Passover pilgrims with the wrong idea about the son of David, their Messiah, who will deliver in their eyes the people from Rome's subjugation of them on a nationalistic level, or whoever happens to be holding power over them. And they have a storied history of all that. Egypt, Babylon, Rome. 
Mark 10.45 also brings healing to our blind spots, and we have them too, even as Christians. For the context of our gospel reading today, Mark 10.45 says this, The Son of Man came not to serve, excuse me, not to be served, but to serve, and to give us life as a ransom for many. That life that he came to give, he graciously gives to you today in his body and his blood, that you too may know his peace. Come, Lord Jesus. Come and teach us your way. Amen. And now may he who began a good work in you bring that to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Amen.